Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Blink UX is looking for a head of research in San Francisco or San Diego. Hart is looking for two roles, a digital copywriter and a digital designer. These roles can be based in Columbus, Ohio or Toledo, Ohio. More Advertising is looking for a senior graphic designer. It's a remote position, but it is based in Waterton, Massachusetts. Design B&B is seeking a program manager strategist in Chicago, Illinois. 1323 is seeking a designer for their Austin, Texas office. Remote applicants are welcome to apply. And finally, Front is looking for a lead product designer in San Francisco, California. Did you know that for just $99, you can post your job listing with us? It'll be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Step up your diversity and inclusion efforts, companies. We're here. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, this episode is coming out on March 1st, 2021. That means that Revision Path is now eight years old. Well, we turned eight back on February 28th, but yeah, eight years in the game. That is phenomenal when you think about podcasting, really when you think about how black design has started to become recognized in the design community, black design practitioners, etc. Uh, so much has changed over the past eight years uh, since I started Revision Path. And I'm just thankful to still be here to do the show. Thankful for you to be listening. And of course, thankful to all the guests that we've had on here. Uh, special thanks, of course, goes out to my editor, my main man, RJ, who has been really helping me keep these episodes together week by week. Uh, thanks to the rest of the crew, to Paul, to Regine, to Jordan, to Robert. Like, everybody is keeping everything going, which is great. So here's to eight years in the game. Hopefully there's another eight years after that. Um, yeah, that's all I got to say. <laughs> um, but let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. All right, let's get to the interview. This week's guest is Reggie Black. 
a multimedia artist, designer, speaker, mental health advocate, and principal at All Things Progressive in Washington, D.C. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Reggie Black. I'm a multimedia artist and designer, principal of All Things Progressive. I work primarily in hand type, which is, you know, this very distinctive uh, style and of hand, uh, hand type fonts that I've, you know, created and worked on through repetition for years to carve out as my distinct, distinctive language. And I use that to share and articulate thought-provoking messaging through all mediums, whether it's, you know, print, installation, all sorts of medias to just really raise questions and, and, and bring about thought to the public and inner questions and just really highlighting the vulnerability and transparency of everyday life. How have you been doing so far this year? This year, good, man. I think we had an interesting ride in January. With the, <laughs> it, it, felt, it felt like every Wednesday was like a different year, you know, with being here based in D.C. and seeing the, you know, the what transpired on the Capitol and then like the following week getting a new president and then like the following week, like, so this year, not bad, you know, but in general, Maurice, like all things considered, you know, I feel like with everything going on in the world, I feel like health is a luxury. And if you have that and family and employment, you can get up every day and just be grateful for that. I, I think that uh, I've been trying to focus on more on that than the, the larger questions for, for now, if that makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, as you sort of, I guess, approach this year, did you have any sort of resolutions or goals that you wanted to accomplish? I've been dancing around this question, and I think it's clearly a result of what we've experienced in the pandemic, just living life without really, I won't say without really questioning things, but I've, I've been thinking about what is enough. And that's not the resolution, but I think it is a gateway to patience and intention for me. And I don't really know what resolutions they they have uh, become, but I know I definitely as 2020 has taught us all how very transparent, I'm sorry, how, how very uh, temporary everything can be. And then also quite how very transparent the world can be. I- I've been really thinking about like, what's the intention behind my life and what I want to do and being very specific about the work I want to share with the world. And then also, who am I as a person? You know, because uh, to be perfectly frank, I feel like during the pandemic, a lot was lost, you know, a lot of business slowed down. And so it was a lot of, I didn't realize that a lot of my life was connected with work. So I had to kind of go on this path of relearning myself and being with myself and spending more time with this myself because it was normally, I guess, pre-normal times, it was travel, travel, travel. So you didn't really get it that much time to have a lot of introspection. Been dancing around with those few things. What do your days look like now? Still early rising. You know, I'm, a, I'm an early riser. I get that from my grandma and for me, I'm up, you know, there's meditation, there's journal writing, which which is very uh, essential to my day. Gratitude writing. I bought a water rower last year during the pandemic when I realized that I was probably going to stay out the gym. So I'm, I'm doing that. Still in work every day, you know, still working on design projects. What I am learning is that it doesn't have to be as aggressive as I used to think it was. And so, you know, there's breakfast, there's conversations with my wife, conversations with my son, you know, breakfast, coffee, I'm starting to buy more 
coffee table books and design books just to have time and reference material around the house to kind of browse at and look. And so I'm doing a more of that. It's like more research, more uh, deconstruction to reconstruct a lot of things, just tons of notebooks all around the house. I'm just kind of jotting random thoughts and really, you know, trying to document this process to be able to look back on it and think about where my mind was during the times and in between, you know, watching comedy on Netflix and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, just trying to stay human in it all, you know, still working, but realizing that we don't have to be the machines that we once thought we did, you know, in order to get things done. Yeah, I feel like, you know, this past year has been a very interesting sort of, I don't want to call it an experiment, uh, a treatise, I guess, on how our relationship to work is because, I mean, I think one thing, it's it's amazing how quickly we've sort of seen the disappearance of the American office space mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. You know, there were so mm-hmm. many things about being in one spot and collaborating in person. And now all of that has largely been replaced or at least supplanted by Zoom calls and Google Meet mm-hmm. calls and, you know, just conference calls and things like that. And, you know, sort of reexamining what it means to work collaboratively, what it means to work asynchronously what it means to work across great distances is something that I think a lot of people have had to contend with. And sort of, you know, to your point now with us sort of, you know, depending on where you live in the country, being in one place that now is not just your home, it's your gym and your kid's school and, you know, it's date night and it's like all these things rolled into one. I can see how that sort of that will cause, I, I hope it, it causes people to sort of think and reevaluate about like what is important. But yeah, this past year has been that, something for real. That's very true. Do you spend a lot of time? Do you, I mean, do you have like a studio that you travel to throughout the day or you're kind of doing everything like in home or that's a very interesting point. And I think it, it takes a lot of, I think screen fatigue is becoming more real than anything. And, and this idea of what home is, is be, is being redefined. So just curious, yeah. you know, like how, are you in and out of a few different spaces kind of separating work from home or? Usually, I mean, before the pandemic, sure. I mean, so I've been working kind of, I've been doing this remote work thing since like 2009. So by the time, you know, and I hate to say it, but like when the pandemic first happened, I was like, oh, I can do this standing on my head. I was like, I got this. This ain't nothing. But like what's different is how other people now have to kind of, sort of acclimate and adapt to this time, which is what I didn't necessarily consider when it all sort of first started. I don't have a space. Like, okay. right, like I sort of have a corner in my bedroom where I work and I'm able like to mentally, well, I'm sort of now able to mentally separate work from home largely through, I think I mentioned this on the show before, but like I have smart lights in my apartment so I have different lighting modes that will sort of signal to me, okay, this is the work lighting mode where all the lights are on and I'm working, but then this is relaxation mode where the lights are dimmer. And like, I know this is for like watching TV or something like that. And so the lights will come on and off at certain times and stuff. And that just lets me that. know like, Oh, I need to like switch gears into doing something else. Or I need to switch to I another mode, you know? I love um, that. Yeah. That's perfect. I love that. Figure out where you got those smart lights from. I love that. That's a, <laughs> that, that, that's a beautiful way to transform the home, right? Yeah. Like, because it it has become all one thing. And I love what the pandemic has done for creativity to get people to think about collaboration. And that was really 
spot on when you talked about it, like the American work, the American office mm-hmm. and what that will look like in the future. Because, you know, I don't, although I do think that offices were a beautiful place for meeting and, and, and collaboration, I wonder if the office was also kind of this cage that suffocated people's imagination, right? Like, cause you can yeah. contribute, you can contribute to your company from home in a way that you, that activated certain creative senses that you probably couldn't do in the corporate headquarters because of the culture that was embedded in there. So it'd be interesting to hear like, or see or study or something like what type of new results are being generated from people being at home versus going into an office every day. Like, is there a difference in the modality and the thinking behind problem solving at work? I would love to like, just see how that could transform the workplace and office and and company culture in general. Yeah, I think we'll start seeing profiles like that, certainly like within a few months, because I feel like that's when Mm. companies, at least last year, started saying, okay, well, now you're going to be working from home for like the foreseeable future. And some companies, they were just sort of kicking the can down the road. They're like, oh, well, we'll be back in the office by the fall. Oh, we'll be back yeah. in by the winter. And it's yeah. like, no, you still yeah. will be at home. <laughs> the The last company that yeah. I worked for, and it's funny, you know, we're talking about the American workplace. They really prided themselves on having a great office space. I know about mm-hmm. this because I wrote about how great their office space was, <laughs> like about how it had these different sort of modes inside the office for working. And we've got this terrace and we've got this. Wow. And at the time that I was working there, we were about to expand up to the like a higher floor that was going to give us more space, more desks, like a a sunlit wow. reading room and all that <laughs> stuff. And then the <laughs> pandemic happened and shut all of that shit down. Like wow. none of like they just halted construction. And then I think it was about two months after that they laid off my entire department. So I was like, oh well, you know. Fast wow. forward to now, and this is only from what I know just from people that still work there like they've actually like sublet the office now there's no plans to go back anytime soon and like it was something that the company really prided itself on like almost as much as the product itself they prided themselves on having this really great workspace and now they don't have that so that's true wow that's interesting man yeah it's uh we'll see you know a lot of things aren't coming back you know the reality the reality of this all and i wonder where the home office, I'm uh, not the home office. I'm sorry. I wonder where the office and yeah, I wonder where the home office lands. And then I also wonder where the corporate headquarters, where do they begin or what's the new, the new future for them? You know, yeah. so we'll see. We yeah. will see. I, I think that the longer we're in this situation, the harder it's going to be to get people to return back to work. I will. Mm-hmm. I, I do feel that way. You know, it I, will I be. Feel that way. I know that from experience. It will <laughs> it will definitely be hard to go back into an office because so back when I like had my studio like in you know sort of in full swing, I mean I would spend days sometimes inside of a like a company's workspace or I'd work out of a Starbucks or something. I had sort of the freedom to kind of move between different spaces to work, but I did largely work like at home. And it wasn't until I sort of like wound my studio down near the end of 2017 and got a job. And even that was a remote first job because the the company was headquartered in New York and I'm in Atlanta. So it was still a, a kind of remote first job. But there would be times where we would have to go to the office. Like 
whether it was onboarding a new employee or we had our on-site for the year or something like that. And it was so stifling, like for all of us that were remote workers, it was just so stifling being in that building for wow. like list, like going to meetings and stuff. It's just like the chairs aren't, aren't like our chairs at home and like the snacks aren't the right snacks. And <laughs> you know, it's why is it so cold in here? Like it's all these different sorts of things. It was, you know, certainly difficult, but. Which all play, I feel like that's so interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like all of those small things that we overlook are what contribute to our productivity and where we can trend, where we can teleport ourselves to produce work, right? Like if you don't have the right chair or, you know, the right environment, a large percentage of the day is all about getting comfortable to be able to perform. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I just think that it's, uh, I think that it's all interesting and we'll really see new definitions of what commercial spaces and home offices, you know, how they overlap and, and, and one supersedes the other. Yeah. And to answer your earlier question, so I, I don't have like a separate like studio space. Got it. But I want one now. Yeah. Like yeah. hands down, yeah. I want one now. So like I've started already yeah. looking even just at like places in my neighborhood. Like I like I don't need a lot of space. I just want a separate discrete space for work that's mm-hmm. not my home. I've transported and teleported it uh, into the guest bedroom. So my wife was like, listen, I, said, I don't think we're going to have any guests. So let me just go ahead and, uh, and, yeah. and take this over. So, uh, so it's become the nook that I'm able to, to get a lot of things done at to your point to have something completely separate just to come in and make this the work studio and the office. And, and it's, it's cozy for me. It feels, feels really good to be here. I've got accustomed to, getting up every day and making breakfast and then coming to work. You know, it's, it's weird. All these things that I have to mentally do to get prepared, like get up and get fully dressed. Like I, I can't sit around the house and like lounge wear and sweatpants. Like I'm, I'm up fully dressed every day as if I was like mm-hmm. going outside. And even if nothing really, really happens that day, if I just get on the keyboard and, and peck away at a few emails, I feel like I've done enough to kind of, keep myself motivated for the next day. Cause what I have noticed is that for me, it's all or nothing. Like I'm either super inspired or I've like watched too much news and I'm just depressed for like a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. there is no, in, there is no in between. So in my head, like the thoughts are, well, how can I keep myself inspired to focus on the things that are in the pipeline the things that I am working on instead of tr- creating this kind of like home retreat where I can bounce back and forth between the news and calling a friend. Like I still have like office time where I like do not disturb hours and just to try to have some sort of structure and regimen in place that allows support to mentally constantly exercise mentally to make sure that I'm in a space to produce something. And if I show up that day and I end up with nothing, then that's what it is. But at least I like to carve out that, that landscape to be able yeah. to do so. Yeah. And like, that's super important now because you have to impose those structures when you're working from home, because your home is the place where you are really don't have that structure. Like home is where you're supposed to like, after work, you let your guard down, you like have a glass of wine, you relax, you chill. It's hard to really shift between work mode and like relaxation mode in the same place, (laughs) you know? So like you have to put... 
Like I like I time shift a lot of my emails. I have a booking link if somebody needs to reach me. It's not like, oh, can I pick your brain? No, you can pick an appointment mm. and we can get to something maybe <laughs> later on in the week or something. You know, like I have to like really segment and regiment my time pretty strictly now during this pandemic that I really didn't have to do before. But it's it is important. important to do it's, that. It is. And I think because, you know, we will find ourselves doing things the busy stuff. It's like, oh, well, you know, I can watch a movie and cook a nice lunch or do laundry or clean up or straighten up. But like you said, like home is comfortable. And so the things that we do at home aren't typically figuring out a way to stay productive and work. Yeah. And so the moment kind of escape and slide off to, you know, even just go to the kitchen to get a glass of water or something, right? It's like you think of something else that could be done while you're at home when really it's supposed to be the working hours. And so I think you're spot on with having those like regimens in place to keep supporting. And listen, like the reality is like, cause I don't want to sound like I'm super like buttoned up, but you know, the reality is some days I just don't have it. And it's like, all right, I'm, I'm sitting right here and I'm going to binge watch a few things all day for the next couple. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and that's just the ebb and flow of where we are right now. Like it's okay to not be productive. It's okay to not want to create, you know, all of 2020, a large percentage of it, I couldn't muster up to produce work. You know, like I just couldn't because the social tension, Black brothers that look like you and I were being killed pretty much every day, it felt like in this country. And so the things that I were, the things that my creativity was fighting for, it didn't feel important. It wasn't important. It's not important because it's like, if we're not doing anything to kind of contribute to shifting the climate of racial tension in this country or Whatever your cause is, climate change or food deserts in the country or economic disparity, whatever it is, if none of that has really happened and you're not contributing to that, it's like, all right, well, what I'm doing is invalid at the moment. And so I don't want it to appear to be like this time is a priority productivity training camp where you have to be as productive as you can. No, if you gain a couple pounds throughout this thing, everything is okay because we're all dealing with this differently. And it is something that none of us have experienced before. I spent a lot of time talking to my mom on Facebook and I mean, not Facebook, FaceTime. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I'm starting to enjoy those conversations more because she's like, listen, I'm, I'm 72. And like, I have no idea how people are dealing with this. Like we've never seen anything like this before. So it's interesting to talk to an older person to try to kind of hear what they think about where we are at the moment. it's like, like, this is the, the most mental exhausting time periods because life was open, you know, it was everybody could be and do. And, and so however people are dealing with this thing is, is perfectly fine. I just feel like for me, I'm trying my best because I spent a lot of years in depression. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm almost what somewhere in between six and seven years sober. So, you know, I struggle with anxiety. So, uh, you know, I struggle with mood disorders, all sorts of things. My ability to kind of stay strong in this moment is really predicated on a lot of like, I like to call them tricks that I have to impose on myself, impose on myself to keep me moving and keeping me motivated. Yeah. I'm sort of the same way with having those tricks. Like I have, I basically have to kind of give myself a routine. Like I wake Mm -hmm. up like every morning, like seven, seven a.m. from seven to eight 30. It's me like getting ready for work. I'll, like okay. water the plants, make some tea, all this sort of stuff. And then like yep. for me, I'm like completely in work mode from 830 
to 4.30. I don't answer any other emails or anything. Like, everything is focused just on work. Because for me, like, I know that I've got stuff to do usually right after work. Like, I end work at 4.30, and then I'll start doing interviews at 5 o'clock, you know. Or I have other calls or something else that I have to do, you know, like after work so like there's my eight to four thirty time which is work and then there's my like five to maybe like eleven thirty or midnight where i'm working on other stuff i try to put that split in there so i know like this is when i need to shut this off and then turn this on and you know even like i was telling you about the lights like the lights help me like those are tricks too like eleven thirty, all the lights in my apartment are off wow. and like whatever i'm wow. working on it's like okay i should probably go to bed now yep because, I mean, that's the thing, too, like, and, and I love how you've underscored the the home, right? Like, we don't want it to become, like, because it's so comfortable, we can go throughout the day and not really identify the things that need to happen. And so you find yourself it being, you know, midnight and you're still working. You're like, wait, like, but I'm supposed to be in bed, too. So yeah. it's tricky, you know, like the home can transform and become whatever you want it to be during this time period. Like, if you, if you engulf yourself in work, you're going to feel so comfortable that you don't realize that you're working that much or if it's become you know an oasis of relaxation you're going to find yourself struggling to kind of find a spark to get some things done and that's why i said like just having some sort of system or or a few things to keep you in line to break that like you said to to have that break in the day because we're not active as we used to be we're not commuting we're not moving our bodies which i try to do a lot but you know like i have several friends who just do walking meetings only like they refuse Hmm. to sit zooms and they refuse to sit on like skypes and so they take all their their meetings on the phone like it's straight i'll get your your zoom call-in number or you can call me on my cell phone yeah and they walk the neighborhood while they're having a meeting and take notes on their phone or you know what i mean Mm. To, to find balance to stay active because like you said if we're just sitting in front of screens every day you got to think about what that's doing to our physical health as well and so something I'm going to try to incorporate this year as well, too, you know, just moving more and getting back to it because, yes, I row at home, but I still think that there's there's something about getting up and getting out and physically moving your body and walking. I don't know if like, you know, hit or, you know, YouTube workouts or I have a Peloton subscription. I don't have the bike. I have like the classes that you can take online, but you're uh-huh. still right, you're still in front of a screen, you know, following the trainer. And so I it's much different than walking to the local grocery store to get groceries and physically moving your body. Something that happens there that just we're missing with being dormant for for this period of time. The walking meetings, that's actually a really that's a good idea. I was watching something on the news recently that uh, I think scientists were saying that the biggest kind of byproducts of the pandemic is going to be just how much people's mental health is being yep. affected, whether it's, you know, like you said, depression, anxiety, etc. Like, I was out of work for half of 2020. And yeah. during that whole job search and everything, like, it was a lot. It was a lot to deal lot. with, you know. It's a lot. Especially it's when you're lot. also seeing, you know, with other things happening in the world at the time, like you said, the social unrest, the yep. former administration and how they're handling all this. It's just like, there would be days I would just, like, get high and just play video games all day. And like, that's yeah. the day and that's all I'm doing. And, and, and the, I think what I'm trying to say is that all of those days are just as important as having super productive work. It's like, I don't think we're in the space to judge what day is superior than others, because I feel like now more than ever, we're seeing 
the value of life and just how important it is. And so whatever you do with that day, it's a success, you know, because you mm-hmm. could not be here. You know what I mean? Like, like you just couldn't be here. And so to have that, we got to somehow undo this badge of honor that America has imposed on us, this busy badge of honor. And I'm on that same quest too. Like there has to be a balance of being a, a human fucking being and also being able to produce and do work. Like you shouldn't be consumed by work all the time. And the walking meetings is actually from a good friend of mine, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She's a good friend of mine. We met during 10 years and we've just become like really cool and some of the best closest homies ever. And that's her whole, when I heard her tell me that I was like, wait, you don't do what? And she's like, nah, just, you know, it's all walk. I got, got to move my body. And so I'm uh, constantly grabbing things from people that inspire me and make sure that I can keep finding new ways to just, just stay in this fight. You're right. Like it's, it's a mental fight that we we're more concerned with than anything. Let's talk about work. Tell me about the studio. When did you decide to, to start all things progressive? Oh, man. Um, All Things Progressive. It's a love child of mine that I've had in my head for a few years. And I'll I'll tell you why a few things contributed to the thought. You know, working as a, a solo artist, I feel like when there's not a studio or some formal structure, business structure is what I'm talking about now. Like when there's not some form of some business structure formed, what happens oftentimes, I feel like when you're pitching for larger work or larger clients, it's weird. And this is a trick that I've kind of, not even a trick, it's just like a, a professional hack that I believe is really stupid, but also very important. It's a legitimacy thing. Most large companies won't choose to work with you if you're just kind of a solo artist. And so it's like, oh, well, either they don't take you serious or they don't think you'll have your terms and conditions in place. Or a lot of times, they want you to be the artist when you're saying, no, I have a multitude of services that I can provide. And so, yes, there's Reggie Black. That's the hand type artist. That's the multimedia designer that can do a lot of the beautiful things. And, and you know, with my hand and with type and with abstracts and all the things. But then there's also a part of me that can do the very like beautifully graphic design products or, or package design or identity systems, right? Like I, I have two sides of my brain that allows me to do both. And so what I realized was that in order for me to be able to kind of empty the tool bag and access all of the things that I've been able to accumulate throughout the years through beautiful mentorships and, and just countless hours of trying to figure this thing out, I said, well, what if I put a, a business structure in place that allows me to separate if someone wants to hire Reggie Black for the bold and visceral hand type that he produces, that's one thing. But if there's a graphic design job or a book cover job or anything that separates it and kind of takes me away from Reggie Black, it's almost like a personality. And then it, it kind of evolved into just having a few collaborators that I could work with. You know, we can I can hire them for various projects and almost became like a think tank. And so 2018 is when I like officially formed it. I I had the name for a while. I didn't really know what to do with the name, but really it's just about trying to create value and spark things that move forward and spark things that, and and work with clients that want to have a bold perspective on where they're going and what they would like to do. And so with All Things Progressive, it's really just an experimental playground for companies and businesses and clients that want to figure out how to redefine 
their perspectives and where they're going and what they want to do. And and we assess each project as such. And I like to look at everything that's going on in the marketplace within that particular genre of industry that I'm being hired for and go the complete opposite. Because I think that there's a, a clutter that's happening in every industry where people are just kind of copying and, and regurgitating what is successful in the industry. And then when that trend ends up dying, you see the, all the businesses that have have led themselves down that path die with it. So I'm, I'm always about how can we go the opposite direction? And that's where all things progressive that, you know, every project we kind of assess, you know, it's like, all right, well, if there's a book cover design, what the author speaking on self-help, well, let's look at every self-help book cover and go the complete opposite direction. Because it's very easy to follow the, the herd and end up in the clutter. But I think it's brave to say, well, sure, yes, I am a, a smoothie company that I'm thinking about, you know, rebranding was like, well, do we have to use green? Like, do we have to use the colors of vegetables? You know, like I'm always about how can we push something in the opposite direction of where people think it should be? Like, what if we do the impossible? What if we do like the unimaginable in every case and see where that experimental play side of our human instincts take us? Have you been finding that clients have been more experimental during these times? Yes, because, you know, what I think Maurice is happening is that everybody is sort of realizing that everything, and I think we, you and I talked about this, you know, previously, like everything needs to be redesigned. And right now, while the world is figuring out or trying to figure out where to go, I think this is a beautiful time for everybody to kind of shake things up. Like it's, I don't know if we, we're living in like uh like no one's under scrutiny right now, right? Like you can do something that's completely left field and it's completely okay because we're all trying to figure out a way to move our businesses forward because what we thought worked, we saw something as you know large as COVID come and hit us and realize that, oh, I might need to figure out how to not be so comfortable. And so experiment and play is becoming a part of the almost like the culture of companies now, because what they're realizing is that one, you have to fight for attention now because everybody's home. Everybody has, you know, four to five screens at home, whether it's the TV, the iMac, the iPad, the phone. So attention is at an all time high and everybody's willing to consume information. And so what are you going to do to kind of separate yourself to at least just to garnish a little bit of that that attention or take a little bit of that in the marketing department or product that you're building or campaign that you're about to launch. Like what's going to make your messaging stand out a bit more just to kind of hold the attention of somebody that's scrolling on Instagram for 10 more seconds than it would if you were doing things differently. And so I was just talking to one of my design friends. We we're talking about how you see a lot of the large you know, I guess old guard companies doing identity system rebrands. You know, GM just did it. Kia just did it. There's another one that I thought was important as well. Even the CIA just like rebranded, right? And so you're watching so many old guards realizing that if we don't do something differently, there's a possibility that we'll become blockbuster. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when they was completely avoiding what Netflix was trying to say or BlackBerry, when they had, you know, the largest market share in mobile devices, and they thought that we were all going to love QWERTY keyboards forever, and then we got the iPhone. And so no one is at liberty to kind of rest and relax in this moment of uncertainty. I think if things are uncertain, let's push uncertain ideas. If things are 
unorthodox, let's push unorthodox ideas. And that's what I'm really excited about. Like what's going to land when the smoke clears from where we are? And if it does land, will you be able to tell a story that was innovative and different in the midst of all of the smoke that's happening? And it's good that companies, I think, now are starting to be open to this. Almost, they almost have to, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah. They, they have yep. to. I think they realize that either two things happen. The brand story expires or they realize that they aren't the only players in the industry that they thought they were. And so they have to, you know, and, and they have to innovate in a way that respects the customer and respects their consumer base, but also figuring out a way to tap into new consumer bases too, right? Like that's what we're seeing happening and everybody's scrambling and trying to figure it out. And to add another layer on it, everybody also now realizes that, which something they should have realized or been able to, excuse me, identify years ago is that they had to have a social responsibility. And now we're seeing a scramble where everybody's trying to figure that out, like on the fly. And it's like, nope, like if that was built into the culture beforehand, you wouldn't have to hit the panic button when you see something like George Floyd happens, when you see something like our sister Breonna Taylor happens, when you see something like the former administration wants to put the wall and immigration and, and, and family division on the borders. And like if there was, you know, one company that I sincerely love is Patagonia because they've been that way for a while, like the the CEO and the ethos of that company has clearly stated that like, this is what we're going to speak on. And we're going to speak on it regardless of what the social times are. And I think that the commercial structure has existed in a space of reactionary approaches. And I think now we have to figure out a way how to be more proactive. Like Ben and Jerry's is doing a good job, but Patagonia has clearly put their foot down in so many instances saying like, this is where we are and we're not going to waver about it. And then what ultimately happens that you see something transpire socially and they're the first ones to respond. Nike has always done a good job, you know, like Widener Kennedy and their marketing teams over there, like that whole, everything about their campaigns are beautiful because they're always thinking about how can we make sure that we're on top of what's happening socially? Because that's what, you know, our product typically lives in urban cities where Black people and people of color are affected. And so we have to make sure that if we are speaking to the Colin Kaepernick situation, if we're speaking to, you know, social uh, racial injustice in this country, we have to make sure that we're ready to be able to articulate that at any moment. No, no, I was just thinking, like, I think it was like right around the time this year started. I'm like, I wonder how companies are going to react to not just Black History Month this year, but also Juneteenth. Interesting. I think a lot of folks, we'll say non-black folks, but I think a lot of folks just discovered what Juneteenth was last year. And for yep. many people, this is a fr- it's going to be a free paid holiday for them. I'm yep. like, how are people going to jump out the window trying to show how woke they are this year? I wonder. <laughs> I mean, we're, well, we're recording this like at the start of Black History Month, so that remains to be seen. Sure. But yeah. Sure. Yeah. It, no, I, I agree with you. I think, I think, and that goes back to the point that I was just trying to make. In addition to support what you just said, like, I feel like they weren't considering it to begin with. And so they're in panic mode because what today's, you know, we're recording this on February 1st, as you just said. And so they got five, four or five months to kind of rally up to figuring out 
how to structure things. And then you're seeing companies in Black History Month trying to roll out these large, beautiful campaigns that they probably thought about two weeks ago or, or yesterday. So I don't know, man. I think what it really boils down to is equality and diversity in the workplace and in the companies. When you look at a lot of the companies, VC funded companies, tech companies, everywhere across the board, people that look like you and I aren't represented at large numbers. And so you have a specific voice that's speaking for the entire company that's offering a product to the world that's as diverse as America is, which we know that that doesn't land well. And as a result of that, you end up seeing messaging that's off and messaging that's tone deaf. And that's why they always have to hit the panic button because they've overlooked that women need to speak and be in positions of power. Black men need to speak and be in positions of power so that there's a diverse language and it's not just coming from a white millennial, you know, who started a company with X amount of dollars in seed funding and they're just doing it to be, you know, cool. Like we have to figure out a way to ensure that people have a a social impact model built in before they even get started. Like, sure, we want beautiful products. Listen, you know, I'm a student of Japanese culture and beautifully designed products through and through. And, you know, Herman Miller and Scandinavian design. I love all the things like I love all of that. But what I love most importantly is being able to I love uh, Nina Simone's quote, you know, you know, art must reflect the times. And I think that now companies have to identify that and figure out a way to catch up to speed, but then also realize that it's not black people's you know, responsibility to solve the overlooking of what white people have kind of dragged along in this country. It's not our job to fix that. Like that's the work they have to do, you know? Yeah, no, that's very true. Very, very true. So I know we've, we've like kind of just spoken (laughs) at length about uh, a number of things. I kind of want to jump into some of the, the projects that you've done. I mean, you've, just sure. sort of recent, I mean, in this conversation, you kind of mentioned being in Southeast Asia for a while. Let's start there. What brought you to Southeast Asia? The entire family, and it's, it's the trio of us. There's the wife, Shantae, who I love dearly. We've, we've been together forever. And as my son, Taewon, we were looking for a life change. And 2014, there was an opportunity for my wife to take a job internationally with her company. And we wanted our son to go to international school. And then to be quite frank, I think I was hitting a a wall here in America. You know, at that time, you know, we talked off the record a little bit. At that time, that's when Sticky Inspiration was kind of deplaning and there wasn't a lot of momentum happening there anymore. And we'll talk about Sticky Inspiration later to draw it back and connect the dots. But I was just kind of out of a lot of opportunities and things weren't really looking as promising as I thought they would and I felt like, and let's just go away and start over. And at least for me, my wife's career was successful. My son was entering high school. So everybody was kind of engulfed in this new chapter. And we left, you know, 2014, we moved and moved to Bangkok. And what I did know is that it was an opportunity for me to set myself apart, but it was also an opportunity for me to go and to discover something. At that time, what it was, I had no idea. I had no idea that Asia and Southeast Asia in general would birth largely the design sensibility and the style and the projects that would give me the platform to be able to come back to America. And so when we got there, it was like, hey, well, this is the new the new terrain that you have to kind of summit, if you will. And so I, I didn't have any relationships there. I didn't know anybody there. And 
but I knew I wanted to start to get my work out, you know, internationally. And uh, so it was just a matter of me just kind of doing the groundwork and meeting people. And, and clearly, you know, for the record, I didn't speak Thai. I didn't speak Japanese. And a lot of the places that we went and a lot of the, the pitches that I was I was submitting for, you know, there was a lot of rejection. I recently, as of like last year, I just got a an artist manager, which is my good friend, Allison Bashar, who's now my artist manager. But for my entire career, I think the last 15 years, it's just been my wife and I just kind of managing this thing and figuring it out. And so everything that we were submitting for and trying to make happen, we weren't getting any responses. And so you and I had a conversation about starting where you are. And so I was the only thing that I knew was that one, I'm a, I love coffee. And so there was a community there that was creative. And then also there was the coffee culture there in Bangkok that I loved. And I just started going to the same coffee shops like every day, every day. That was my routine. I would go there. I would do a couple hours in Illustrator. I would write a little bit. I would read a little bit because I, this was this new path that I was trying to figure out. And funny enough, what happened is that I realized that one of the coffee shops also had this kind of multimedia function where it served as an art gallery. And so I had literally, after so many months of just going to the coffee shop every day, I was like, oh, I would love to have an exhibition here one day. And, you know, the owner, Kay at Ink and Lion, I, you know, shout out to them because they were really gracious. Here you are. You have a, a black man coming to Bangkok and, you know, in a Thai owned coffee shop and multimedia space. They took a chance and was like, well, let's let's do it. You know, and this is 2015, you know, so we got there in 2014. It took me about a year to really go outside. I didn't even as vibrant as the world sees Bangkok. Like, I, to be quite honest, I was somewhat afraid of it, you know, because there's 20 million people there at capacity when the city swells up on a midday Tuesday afternoon from the commuters. And it's a huge city. You know, we're talking New York City maybe times two. There's 20 million people that that swell up in that city every day. So I just think the the hustle and bustle of it and the foreigner mentality that we had to experience being black, which is another whole nother podcast we can record for, you know, like that, all of those elements kind of frightened me a bit. And so I kind of took this route of familiarity and done I guess did the things that I knew. And when that one opportunity for an exhibition started, there was some local press that picked it up. And it was a few big BK magazine who did a really good job with doing a story on me there. And we're all talking like Thai publications. There is no like English and documenting English culture or foreigners that come there. I started to land placement and, and notoriety in the Thai community, creative community. And so one thing led to another one exhibition happened at a coffee shop and another exhibition happened during Bangkok Design Week. And then another exhibition happened at another space and, and it all just kind of snowballed. So it ended up being three exhibitions in Bangkok, one in one in Tokyo, which was a combination of our, you know, when we were there, we were traveling a lot. So we would just go to different places for family vacations. And I was like, oh, I want to show here. I want to show there. And it was just Tons of groundwork, tons of rejection. You know, the ex, the, the gallery that I showed at in Japan, big in the gallery, they took a chance on me as well. So I think there was a lot of people along that way and along that journey that was gracious enough to see the potential of my work that, because it wasn't always like what it is now. There was a lot of discovery of me trying to find a voice. So the work that I showed in 2015 looks completely different than the work that I produce now. And so 
going on that journey and having that rejection and, and being this kind of uh, ambassador for myself, it was basically like, all right, you're here by yourself. You have to figure out a way to believe in your art and the things that you're making because no one else will. And so three exhibitions in Bangkok, one in Hong, one in Tokyo, and then it, it landed to meeting some really cool guys, uh, marble print and clay in Hong Kong. And so within that four years, we, you know, it was a matter of what, five exhibitions, you know, internationally, which started to garner a lot of attention back in the U.S. because I was sharing everything on social and people were seeing the momentum happen. But it wasn't the case before I left. So uh, I was like, well, maybe it's time to go back. And then the family and I, we decided to come back four years later. And here's where we are to the modern day. Yeah, it was a journey. It was a real journey. And, and I'm grateful for all of it because I think that it was something that I personally needed to go through to really just kind of trust myself. I think for a long time, I didn't want to call myself an artist, nor did I ever really want to own the role as an artist, because I always thought it was like you had to have oil paintings in a cool studio and large canvases to work. But I've always worked in in language and, and I've always used like messaging as the art form. And I didn't know anybody that ever did that before. You know, I, I didn't learn about the Barbara Krugers and Jenny Holzers and, and Hank Willis Thomas and the beautiful art that they produce on a public scale. I just knew that there was like street art. And then there was like art that you experience in the galleries. Like I didn't know that there was a hybrid of the two. Paula Cher, who works a lot in graphic design. So it was just all self-discovery that I knew I had to like go on to carve out the space. If it didn't exist, it was a testament to being able to trust myself enough to create it. Before we were recording, I had sort of asked you, like, was there a point that you feel like your work kind of pushed you to that next level of awareness. Mm, and it yeah. sounds like this is this is when it happened, this time when you were in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Maurice, like 300%. And at the moment, I didn't realize it because it was just so much groundwork. And, you know, we never, as creators, we'd never come up for air to assess the things. But what did start to happen there, like throughout our travels, you know, we would go to Japan. I would pick up Sumi brushes and Sumi ink. And I was, it was almost like, the art started to be influenced by like the cultural tones that we start to experience. So if you're in Korea and you see like this beautiful art being produced in a certain way, like all the tools that I use are like pretty much like Asian inspired. And I'm pretty sure that I use all of them wrong. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sure that I don't use like the Sumi brush properly. I know I don't use a lot of the Sumi inks and the, the, the way that they're supposed to be properly used in traditional Japanese and Chinese calligraphy. I don't use them properly. And I just leaned into all what I did lean into is that, you know, I knew that my family and I, we were very fortunate to be a black family and have the, the opportunity to experience and travel throughout Asia and pretty much all of that side of the world. We, you know, we went to, you know, Australia, we lived, we went to New Zealand, mm. we traveled a lot. And, uh, and to my wife's credit, she was like, well, if we're here, we might as well make it happen because, yeah. you know, this is a long trip and like, we need to, you know, experience and see this. And so the work, the travel started to really kind of inform the work that I was making. And all of what you see now is a testament to kind of having that I like to call it like an artist residency to go away and figure out because most people don't get that time. And so I'm very fortunate. You know, you get it in college and then as an adult, it's like, all right, like go out into the world and and pay your dues to society, like be an adult and pay your bills and go to work. And so what I realize is that, you know, my ability to have that four years to incubate and produce and create 
at that point, I had to figure out a way to make sure that that time spent there would be able to produce a lifetime of projects and opportunities that I could make it feel like it was all worth it. Yeah. So I'm curious. <laughs> there's a lot of things I want to want to ask you about. I know that we've been we've you know you've really been going deep into a lot of this stuff. I, I was looking at your latest installation called No Records. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about like where the idea came from for that? No Records, man. I think so many things happened last year, but I think that that's uh, Allison and I. That's our like highlight of the year. Our pride and joy that we're really excited about. And Allison's been a great friend of mine for over 10 years. And uh, it transpired from a good friend of mine, Amanda. I always like to do names when important opportunities happen. So it's like you're giving people the credit and shouting people out along the way. Because there's this weird thing where people feel like artists are just making it alone. And it's bullshit. Like nobody is making it alone. Like somebody Mm -hmm. always reaches out to you, giving you a nudge or an opportunity comes from the grapevine, which is essentially a person, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. no, oh, I'm just out here doing it by myself. And so a good friend of mine, Amanda, that I also had met from the Terra residency during that time, she reached out and said, oh, you know, the Dykeman Farmhouse in New York saw your work and they're looking to kind of highlight this the story of, you know, uh, slaves living in New York. Because a lot of times when we think about slavery, we only equate it to the South, and we don't think about the amount of uh, of slavery that transpired in New York City. And so when they presented that opportunity, Allison and I, we looked at the project and said, you know, if we can't say anything bold, we don't want to be a part of it. And when the Dykeman House, they sent us over, you know, a lot of their archival documentation, a lot of the things that they had kept on record. But to be perfectly honest, Maurice, there wasn't any records. Like, you know, they tried that there wasn't anything on file. They tried to have a lot of information that they thought was valuable to document the lives of the six slaves that lived in upper Manhattan and Mm -hmm. they didn't have it. And so hence the title, No Records, because we said, listen, like we can't pretend to tell a story that is false if the if the institution has pretty much given us the, the, the go and letting us know that they didn't even have any records. And so slaves lived here. What we were learning is that people were living in the Inwood in community, which is where the Dykeman House is. It's like 207 and forgot the Cross Street, Broadway, actually. And people live there in that community every day and didn't realize that they just thought the Dykeman House was like a farmhouse as like an artifact or something. It's like, no, like this is where slaves lived. And we wanted to highlight that and really put that on display. And so that's why I said, you know, the language and the messaging has to be clear to allow people to really get what has happened here. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We don't need to dress it up. We don't need to make it appear to be anything that what it is, is that slaves lived here. And Alice and I, we talked about it a lot and we were really thinking about the messaging. And then when we learned that there's also a very Spanish speaking population in the Inwood community, she said, well, let's do it in Spanish too, because I feel like we have to start making art accessible and to translate the communication so everybody can be a part of the conversation. And that, which was my first time doing that. And I thought that it was actually, it was probably my favorite part of the deliverable of the project because it had invited everybody into the conversation. So at the opening, at the installation, the night of the installation, there were beautiful conversations with people from all walks of life. 
because the art was accessible and and people walked by and whether they saw it in English or Spanish, they was able to get it immediately and have a conversation about it. Not being able to really know that this was something that had happened and they lived in the community, they didn't even know that this existed. And so it was, for me, it was all about accessibility and being able to make a, a, a clean statement that this is what happens and let's not overlook this. And throughout learning that, I learned a lot of the names and places in New York City are named after slaves owners because that's what it was. And so, you know, I lived in Bedstock, but I didn't know Bedford Stuyvesant was a notorious slave owner. I just loved it because I lived there and the culture's there. And you know what I mean? Like, you know, home of Biggie Smalls and home of Jay-Z. And I lived in Brooklyn for three years and it's another huge part of the story that gave me the skin that I needed to keep pushing forward. And, but I didn't know that, you know, Bedford Stuyvesant in the history was, you know, rooted in slave trade. And so we overlook a lot of the things by default, I think, because we we tend to focus on what we deem as cool, but we don't really utilize the resources that we have to kind of outline a whole story. And so for that project, for me, it was like, listen, I, I want to make sure that I don't leave anything uncovered here. So let's let's talk about it. But most importantly, let's make sure that it's extremely plain so everybody can understand it. And you sort of did that like right near the tail end of, of 2020. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That was the end of December. December 7th, I think, was the installation night. We were going to postpone it. We were going to wait to 2021. There was a lot of back and forth with the logistics. And I said, you know, I think that this is an important conversation that needs to happen now. And mind you, we're right off the tails of such a, a devastating year for Black men, women, Black trans, like everything was transpiring in this country with police brutality and just the the injustice in this country. And I said, you know, if we're not going to do this now, like what better time? You know, because I think for for some odd reason, let's just say, you know, non-Black folks feel like that this is a temperamental, temporary issue when the reality is like this isn't going away. There is no special time to talk about these things. And it's something that you and I have to experience every day. Like there is no vacation for being black. You know, you don't mm. get to wake up and turn it on and off when you want to. You have to really, this is the life that we live. And so if this is the life that we live, let me make sure that I'm doing what I can to highlight the things that we go through. And was it always this way, Maurice? Possibly, you know, possibly not. I don't feel like I did my due diligence to make sure that I was highlighting the things of importance. And so when I was looking at a lot of the projects that we had on the table last year and it was assessing things, I noticed a change in me too. I was like, you know, you turn on the news and you see this thing happening nine minutes and 17 seconds or whatever the, the exact time was when the gentleman stood on George Floyd's neck or, you know, Breonna Taylor was shot in her sleep. You look and you see these things. And then I would have to show up to the iMac the next morning and try to design something that was beautiful to sell a product. You know, I started to feel like disconnected, like, yeah, I'm a black man. And yeah, like, but am I really using my voice to highlight the things that define the black plight in this country? And the answer was I wasn't doing my best. And so now I'm trying to make sure that I need to make a conscious effort. My messaging sends a symbolism and it's inspiring and it's thought provoking. And I do a lot of work in mental health and and out and articulating that messaging and outlining that conversation. Right. And but that's a very colorless thing. Like we can all experience that because human emotion is colorless. But when it comes to like specific black issues, like, am I doing enough? And, you know, my wife 
as which is why she's my wife. She's like, listen, like we all have more work to do. And when she said that to me, that was like, like the another pivotal moment in my life. Like, all right, like you, you got to do more to make sure that your voice and your platform is being used and executed in the right way. So, uh, so something I, I definitely get from, you know, really from this conversation and really just from how, how you talk about your work is that you're a very deep thinker. Like it's not just about doing the work, but you're really set on sort of finding the intent and the drive behind it. How do you see the role of the black designer in this current climate? And I'm asking this for, for two reasons. One, I think certainly now with this, this increased awareness that people have about black creatives. And I would say just the struggles of black people in general. I hate that sure. we had to get to this point this far along in human history, but, <laughs> you, um, you and I, I both. but yeah, like the one, there's this increased awareness, but like two, you know, just here on the show, one question I asked every guest last year was how are you using your skills to kind of create a more equitable future? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm posing this question to you and I'd love to get your answer to it. Like, how do you see the role of the black designer in this current time right now? There's kind of two folds to that. I think that forever, I feel like we've been overlooked, like you just said, right? And and I think the role for, uh, we've been overlooked, but then also we've been undervalued. And I think we're only called upon when it's time to clean up something or when it's time to make something look cool. Like when you look at the makeup of the black community and the black culture, like we run the world, like we run shit, we validate what's cool, we make it cool, and then the world grabs it, right? Like hip hop is the fastest growing genre in the world. And it's a very, it's only like 35, almost 40 years old. It's a very young genre, but Mm -hmm. it's created the world, right? And so we look at our ability to have cool, but then we look at like, we don't own things and we're not in positions of power. And so for the black designer right now, I think what's important is for us to say, okay, here's my place in the world. Here's my position. Here's a corporation that wants me to work or collaborate with them in quotes, right? And if that's the case, I have to make sure, we have to make sure that we're saying the things that are important to amplify the topics and issues that are affecting our communities. And I think that's the role. It's okay because we, you know, we're in, that's another thing that I, I dislike a lot is that we feel like artists aren't supposed to be compensated properly. We need to be properly compensated for the things that we contribute and the value that we contribute to messaging. And then also we need to be able to say the things that feel good and speak to our people. And I think that we can't be used as like, you know, pawns in the system to tell a story that isn't accurate to how we believe. Like, we have to reflect the times, which what I was just talking about, like my work, like I was realizing that it was speaking to one thing when in fact the world was on fire and I'm a black man. And at any given moment, I could have been shot as well. So it's like and I'm not saying that, you know, you have to abandon your bread and butter and what you're, you're known for. And like both things can exist. But I feel like somehow they want us to exclude a specific messaging for specific messaging. And I'm saying, no, that they both need to exist right now. And so it's our obligation as the Black designer to make sure that when we speak on these things, we're making sure that we amplify a point that needs to be said that can't be said by a non-Black person. What do you make space for these days? 
I'm trying to get better at self-care. Uh, I mean, I know it's a hot button topic and everybody's trying to explore it and, and define it for themselves. But for me, it, I've always been a very inquisitive child. I've always been a, 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 like you said, and thank you for that compliment, man. I've always been a, a deep thinker. I get it from my mom who isn't as, uh, I guess won't say talkative, but she's a, she's a woman of few words, but the few words that she says are super impactful. And so I picked that up as a child from my mom, who's just very intentional about what she says and why she says it. And so as a result of that, I'm trying to be intentional about how I treat myself and how I care for myself. And I'm spending a lot of time in introspection, asking larger questions as I get, you know, quote unquote older, what do I want this life to really look like for myself? And how can I give myself enough love that's detached from the results? And just really thinking about where I want to go and how I want to impact the world. But before I get there, how do I impact and change myself? Because I think we we go out with the Superman cape on every day to stand up and design and raise questions and fight for causes, which are all beautiful. But I think sometimes we go out you know, half empty, like we're not completely together ourselves. And as I'm going on this journey, I don't believe that you could be of complete service to a cause, a company, a client, if you're not really like at whole yourself or have like a huge, a beautiful sensibility to be able to compartmentalize that, to show up and do that work and then go home and figure out a way how to sort your own personal stuff out. So I'm really just trying to figure out like one, who am I outside of work? And then how can I bring that guy to the work to be able to impact it more? What do you think you would have been if you never like became an artist and a designer? Oh, funny enough, man. Like uh, I've always wanted to be a business banker. <laughs> like a, a business banker. Cap- yeah. Like, like a business banker, venture capitalist, like one of those guys, Goldman Sachs with the suit on and don't, not, I won't say don't ask me why. Ask me why, yes, but then there's two points to it. I wanted to be it because growing up, I felt like that was the only way, like economic, which I do feel like it's still important, but economics is the way to freedom. And so growing up, I was like, well, let me pursue a career of money, one, because that's what a lot of my teachers told me. And that's what it's like, oh, you need to go in. And growing up without it, it's like, well, that's what I want. And then two, I feel like there's not a lot of space for creative venture capitalists. I know that the full premise of it is to, you know, fund companies to have a, a return to build more companies. But I think we have we're doing a huge disservice to excluding the currency of creative intellect. And somehow it's the one thing that drives everything, but it's the last thing to be compensated for. So it's like we can build, you know, big companies to connect us as fast as we need to be and share our most valuable moments. But we overlook the importance of, you know, the everyday creative that's trying to get an idea off the ground. And so, like, I would love to, you know, in a perfect world, like start like a creative venture capitalist fund where there's kind of like these micro grants that small entrepreneurs and innovators and thinkers can apply for and receive. And I know it exists in the world. There's so many beautiful people doing that work. Backstage Capital, who I love, she's doing an amazing job. Arlen Hamilton. There's so many companies that are doing that work, man. But uh, yeah, I think that's what I would have been, man. That's what I it's the impossible for a lot of us. And I'm always looking to like explore the edges and go on the extremes. 
or a DJ or, or a a DJ. Fun, yeah, or a DJ, like or, or a DJ, because I love music and uh, I'm I'm still gotta execute like fun in your life. So on a business side, like a super serious side, uh, venture capitalist, but outside of that, I think uh, like a DJ of some sort. I think it's interesting that certainly other countries do a lot to sort of sponsor artists or, or like to fund the arts. And I, I feel like we used to have that here prior mm-hmm. to the last administration. Hopefully that, mm-hmm. that will come back. Uh, mm-hmm. We start to at least see some more investment from, I think, the government towards artists. But yeah, I would think, you know, even celebrities or other businesses or things like that, you know, I see, and you probably see this too, like there's so many big names that just sort of expect free creative work. Sure. And that's the part that has to be dismantled because, you know, art and creativity is the one thing that communicates every element of our lives, but it's the one thing that's always negotiated, right? Like everything we interact with is designed by somewhere, somebody, the homes we live in, the cars we drive, the clothing we wear. There's a designer, there's some creative intellect that's going on behind that. But for whatever reason, like you said, like we're always the ones that are like, oh, well, just do this for exposure. One person that I do have to highlight and give the credit for is that for somebody that I would like to, if in like a, a big sky dream, Pharrell Williams. I think that he does a beautiful job and he just launched a new uh, Black Ambition incubator to do this very thing. And that's give the Black and Latina X co-founders an opportunity to launch businesses and stuff. So maybe, you know, he's clearly doing something that I would love to do, but in a, you know, in a large, like wish upon the sky, like he's the one person that I would love to meet and work with to some capacity, just because his ability to see, like, listen, you know, I'm a kid from Virginia beach, Virginia, and I connect with that story. Like I'm a, you know, a kid from Northwest DC growing up in the 80s, pre-gentrified DC, when it was very rough to like live and see yourself to transcend this place outside of what society deemed for you to be. And so there's a connection there as well. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of like work would you like to be doing? That's a loaded one, man. I mean, I don't know. Uh, no one knows, right? But I think, because I, I don't want to perceive to have all the answers. I don't know what I will be doing. But what I would hope is that my work will land in places that could inspire people to use their voice. Like if all things progressive could work with clients that could inspire a new generation of business, I feel like that's what I will be doing. So maybe it's in like the aspiring business and that's not a business, but maybe I just need to be in a position to art to, to ignite new ideas and birth new generations of ideas. You know, maybe it's this venture capital thing. I, I I know Reggie Black, the artist, will always be able to produce beautiful, innovative things that I love and believe in. But I think in the next five years, somehow focusing on impact. And that could be, you know, with the Black Artist Fund that uh, Allison and I were working on to carve out and, you know, creating a platform. Like, I think me personally will probably, I won't say take a back seat, but I'll, I'll be thinking about more how I could use my platform to amplify the voices of others to some regard. I don't know what it looks like. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and like all the work that you're doing? Like where can they find that online? I am Reggie black on Instagram. I am. I am Reggie black on Twitter. And my website is I am Reggie black.com. 
So I, I, most of the, out of those few places you can find me, it's where I'll be, man. And I'm, uh, before we get off, I just want to thank you for the work that you continue to do uh, with your platform, Maurice, because it's 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 super important. And I want to thank Ash- Ashley for uh, for recommending me to be here because I think that uh, iron sharpens iron, and I think that the work that you do connects so many people to give them the hope to see. And that's a point that I wanted to make as well before we go off. Like the ability to see what you're doing is a huge void that I missed in my life because I didn't meet my first black designer until I was like 25. Like I didn't know, I didn't know that this was a real thing. Like I didn't meet anybody that could work Photoshop or Illustrator until I was like 25. So, you know, your sessions and your interviews that you consistently put out to the world is hope for somebody that's listening to this, like the little Reggie that was listening to this, that could have been listening to this, you know, 20, 10, 15 years ago to see that this is possible. I think that the the translation and the and the gaps that happen here are all exposure. People don't think that design of some black kids, you know, don't or you know, people of color, they don't think that this is possible because we don't see anybody that can do this. So thank you, brother. Really appreciate you. No, thank you. And thank you for, you know, coming on the show for not just sharing your story, but also really like going deep into the thought that you put into the work and also the messages that you want, you know, to kind of put out there in the world. You know, I really feel like we're going to be seeing a lot more of Reggie Black in the future. I mean, I think certainly just based on what you've been doing so far, I I mean, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. So, you know, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. As long as, Thank you, man. As long as I've been doing this, I feel like I'm just getting started. So thank you so much for acknowledging that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to just staying a student and stay open. And uh, if there's any way I can support further, man, uh, you know where to reach me, man. Big, big thanks to Reggie Black. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Reggie and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Actually, what do you think about Revision Path overall? Please do not be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or better yet, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't had a good five-star rating on Revision Path in a long time. If you're looking to really help support the show, if you want to put a smile on my face, if you want to get your review read right here on the show, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow, of course, but also it just reaches more people around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for eight years of doing this. Eight years. I'm still blown by that. (laughs) 
Uh, again, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.